latest in the Bova News podcast series. I'm your host, Kim Bremer, and today we're going to get an update on dairy policy from Jim Mulhern. Jim is a veteran agriculture and food policy strategist with over 35 years of experience working with Washington, D.C. policymakers and the media. And he's the current president and chief executive officer of the National Milk Producers Federation. Between the situation in the Ukraine, milk price fluctuations, and rising input costs here in the U.S. and other factors, there are plenty of things to talk about when it comes to dairy policy. So let's get started. Welcome, Jim. Hey, Kim. It's great to be with you. So we've all been watching activities that are going on in the Ukraine. First, how has that impacted our dairy industry so far? And do you have any insight to share with us on what the dairy industry is going to do to help? Well, we live in interesting times, don't we? Um, it adds more and more uncertainty into an already uncertain world. You know, we've, I think all of us collectively feeling like we're just pulling out of a, you know, a two-year fog of pandemic. And uh, with all of the interruptions and disruptions that that's created, um, not only in our personal lives, but in our, our business and economic lives. And, uh, and that's been worldwide. So we feel like we're getting some momentum coming out of it. And then we have a, a major international crisis hit us with, with Russia invading Ukraine. And that it just really ratchets up the uncertainty in, in every respect, everything from, from food production because Ukraine and Russia are both major agricultural exporters uh, and certainly in the grain field, um, as well as exporters of, uh, of inputs. Uh, Ukraine, Russia, two of the largest potash producers in the world at a time when fertilizer supplies were already a little tight and, and disrupted. Um, so it really does um, underline and emphasize the, the uncertain world we're living in. And uh, I think the implications of that for all of us are to perhaps rethink some of our past assumptions about how we've done business um, and looking more to the future, I think it makes risk management all that much more important. And for dairy policy, you know, it's an area that um, the good thing for us is that um, we don't have any major um, exports. We haven't exported to Russia really in about 15 years. Um, so that's not a market. Um, Ukraine is not a major importer there, in fact, an exporter of dairy. So um, in terms of dairy, it is going to be disruptive uh, from a market standpoint for us, at least. And there are other, other knockoff effects we could talk about, but it's, it's not going to have an impact on our, or at least our exporting to existing customers. So given the current state of global affairs, what are some of the challenges and opportunities on the export front? Will there be opportunities because historically Ukraine has been an exporter of dairy? There will be opportunities, not so much because um, of Ukraine's role as an exporter. Um, their exports have, have gone probably largely to markets where we don't um, really compete too much. A lot of some of it's gone into the EU, uh, some of it's gone into Russia historically. Um, but it does, again, it's the uncertainty and it does, I think, put some clouds on the horizon. Let me focus first on the opportunities for U.S. dairy. We come off a record year. Uh, 2021 was the highest level of exports uh, for dairy in our history, uh, and it's a relatively short history because, as many of your listeners know, the uh, U.S. was not a dairy exporter until the last 20-25 years. It is built now to be an extremely important part of our, of our U.S. dairy industry um, because it represents, uh, last year, over 17% of our total production. Um, and that is really important because of the productivity of the U.S. dairy industry. We're now producing over 225 billion pounds of milk, and that's about 30 to 35 billion pounds more milk than is consumed in the U.S. market. 
So we need access to those to those foreign markets in order to maintain a, a, a decent price here in the US. Exports were critical for us last year. And the opportunity this year is, is still strong. Um, we look at, you know, you look at the exports from last year, the US had the largest growth uh, in volume of any of the world's exporters. Came at a time when the EU, which is number one in, uh, in dairy exports, the EU is struggling with milk production um, and a number of countries are, are down in production and seems to be leveling off. That's a positive sign for us because it will create more opportunities for us in the export market. Uh, New Zealand, the number two exporter in the world, uh, reliant upon exports, um, their, their production has, has softened a little bit. The key I think with New Zealand is uh, as an island nation with environmental issues, um, they're not going to increase production at the levels they have historically. Um, so they're, you know, they're, I wouldn't say necessarily at peak milk, uh, but maybe close to that. And um, that provides, both of those provide opportunities for the U.S. to become a major, a bigger player in world trade at the very time that we need to become that bigger player. The challenges are the, this international geopolitical situation we just talked about. Uh, that's a dark cloud on the horizon. What's that going to mean to world trade overall? What's it going to mean to world economies? And one of the things we know for sure is that as, as world economies grow, as people move you know, from lower classes up into the middle class, their needs um, and demands for protein increase. That's part of what's driven our ability to increase our export capability has been the, the growth in incomes in the developing world, Asia in particular, um, that has really helped us a lot. If that gets thrown off a little bit, that'll have a dampening effect on, uh, on the volume of exports potentially this year. And then the other major issue, the last one I'll mention in this regard, is this ongoing crisis in supply chain. Um, the port issue is real. Um, it is impacting us. It is delayed greatly. Uh, in many cases, the, the time it takes to ship product off the West Coast in particular, um, and getting product to, coast, to the coast has been a challenge between, between trucking and, and rails. I mean, there are a lot of issues in the supply chain that are, in, are impacting the, the movement of goods. It's not just us, everybody is experiencing that, but it is a factor, it's one of the challenges that we're trying to deal with. Are there any solutions in sight for the port issue? Well, there are some, some um, a number of efforts underway, um, both legislatively and administratively. Um, legislatively, we've been working with a number of other groups to try to address um, this issue through more, uh, more authority for the U.S. Uh, Federal Maritime Commission. Uh, it's, a, it's an independent agency of the federal government that, frankly, to be honest with you, two years ago, um, I didn't know much at all about the Federal Maritime Commission. I've unfortunately had to get up to speed on it over these last two years. Uh, and one of the things that you, you know, found out is it doesn't have a lot of regulatory authority. So we have legislation that has uh, uh, passed the House, the Ocean Shipping Reform Act. Uh, now we're trying to get movement in the Senate and there is movement, positive movement in the Senate on this legislation uh, to move it forward. I would uh, frankly encourage all your listeners uh, to go to our website uh, to um, uh, voice their support for this legislation, which will help address the, some of the challenges um, at, in the ports. Um, our website at www.nmpf.org, and you'll find right on the homepage 
a link that will take you to a, a communication that can be sent to your, your senators uh, to support this important legislation. If we can get this bill passed, it'll help. It's not a, it is not a panacea, it's not a silver bullet, but it will help to begin to address this. That's the legislative effort. On the administrative side, the White House through the Department of Transportation, the uh, Commerce Department, U.S. Department of Agriculture, all working together to try to, uh, to do what they can to uh, uh, encourage uh, progress at the ports to, to get rid of, get this, this backlog um, uh, cleared up a little bit. There've been efforts at the Port of Oakland, uh, efforts developing at the Port of Seattle right now. There's a meeting tomorrow that uh, one of our dairy um, uh, co-ops will be participating in at the, at the Port of Seattle uh, to put focus on the issue there. Uh, but this is something that, that is a challenge. We need all hands on deck. Uh, the administration is, is focused on this now and is, I think, taking a number of steps to, to address it. It is not going to get sold overnight. Uh, that's clear. It's going to take you know, the better part of a year probably to unwind um, this backlog. But we're hopeful that the kind of focus the issue is getting now will be helpful to get us back on track. Well, and great to hear some efforts and movement in the right direction and, and how we can all get involved. Switching gears, can you talk a little bit, bring us up to speed on a few issues that are going on here uh, in the States? Uh, particularly regarding what's the status of any conversations around uh, revisions to marketing orders? Well, lots of discussions on federal milk marketing orders. Uh, you know, a lot of this came triggered by the experience during the pandemic, where we saw um, incredible volatility and um, some policies that have been in put in place prior to the pandemic uh, that in a, in a normal situation would have would have operated as they were intended. Uh, but because of the pandemic and the part of it, frankly, was the, the federal government's response to the pandemic, the response which we asked for. We did ask for help from USDA in the form of direct payments to producers, which we were very successful in getting um, uh, those uh, CFAP, Coronavirus Food Assistance Program, payments to producers, as well as the food box program. A lot of dairy products were, we pushed very hard to make sure dairy was a key part of the food box program. The problem with that aspect of it is uh, the department uh, included more cheese. That was a, a mandatory uh, part of the food box, which we were very happy to see, but more cheese and not much butter um, in those boxes. Those listeners who understand how milk prices work in this country, um, class three product cheese, class four product butter, uh, you know, generally move in um, in fairly close proximity. They go up and down, generally move together. Uh, but when you had the federal government buying so much cheese and virtually no butter, when, the, when we were in the pandemic early in, in the spring of 2020, all of the market prices for all of those products dropped dramatically. When the food box program started, cheese prices turned around and they took a skyrocket ride to highs that we had not seen before, but the butter price stayed low because there was no market intervention to put uh, much butter in those food boxes. That created a huge spread between prices of class three and class four, and that led to lots of problems that um, affected you know, the operations of the federal milk marketing order program. I give you that as background because those are not, those are not the only things. I think the key issue that I would focus on is the fact that federal orders have not been updated in any significant way 
since the early 2000s. That was the last major um, work on, on federal orders where we had a national hearing to look at issues coming out of the one of the farm bills in late the late 90s. The 96 farm bill um, had, had mandated some changes. Those um, became part of a federal order hearing process in the early 2000s. That was the last time we had any major changes. Much has happened in the dairy industry over these last 20 years. Uh, so it is time to modernize the program. Um, and that's really what our focus is at National Milk and our, our dairy cooperative members across the country. This is a very important program for producers. It provides a you know, minimum price um, uh, of, um, on class, it reports minimum prices on class three and four, it doesn't set them, but those class three and four prices do determine the class one, the fluid milk price. So this program remains very important for producer prices. We are focused on updates to the program that will address some of these issues. Um, it is a complicated program, but complication, complicated does not mean that it is uh, not important. In fact, it is so complicated because it is so important. And um, we're deeply involved in a review of the program. I had a meeting yesterday with our federal order task force uh, economists and marketing experts from our, our member cooperatives from across the country, rolling up the sleeves, sitting down in the room, going through uh, the detail, the nitty gritty uh, on the federal order program uh, to uh, put together, working on our uh, package of, of improvements to propose. Uh, we'll go through a process on this. It'll be a deliberative process where our technical group is, is kind of doing this reverse engineering, if you will, to look at what needs to be updated, what needs to be changed. They'll make recommendations to our NNPF um, Economic Policy Committee, uh, which is representative of our co-op membership from across the country. And that committee will make recommendations to our National Milk Producers Board of Directors. Um, so we're on a process that through the course of this year, um, by I think third quarter this year, I expect we'll have recommendations that we'll make and uh, we will be listening, having listening sessions with the producer community across the country this summer uh, to get input, uh, collect views, and uh, all of this will roll up into what will eventually be a, I expect will be a uh, proposal we will submit to USDA uh, to call a national federal order hearing to update, modernize the program. And I suspect that those hearings will take place you know, sometime next year. Long answer to a complicated subject, but I wanted to kind of lay out all of the all of the uh, the movement that's underway on that issue. Well, and I appreciate that, Jim. There's nothing that uh, isn't complicated when it comes to our milk pricing system. But I know there's a lot of producers listening around the country that are wondering if we will even get a chance to have a federal milk marketing order hearing or not, especially after some of the comments made from Secretary Vilsack recently stating you know, that he doesn't seem very excited about holding one until the industry can come together first. So, uh, but in your opinion, you think we may get a hearing? Well, let me pick up on that point because it's a really great one to raise. And, uh, and I completely understand why Secretary Vilsack said that. In fact, um, I have advised our members uh, of the very same thing. Um, look, the reality is that federal order hearings on a national scale are few and far between for a reason. This is a program that operates largely on a regional basis. You have 11 federal milk marketing orders around the country, they're geographic in nature, and they deal with you know, the, the, the movement of milk and the processing of milk 
in those different regions. And there are some different interests and needs in each of those regions based upon how the, you know, how the, the industry has grown up within those orders. Having a national hearing means bringing all of those groups together and to set the sort of the, the constitution, if you will, the, the, the framework for the program. So you're not talking about individual regional milk marketing order issues. Those can be dealt with on a regional market by market basis today, always, always have been, and we do have regional hearings from time to time to adjust those orders. But a national order hearing requires everybody to come together. And we clearly have different interests in different parts of the country. The upper Midwest is largely a manufacturing industry. And most of that is class three uh, cheese. The Southeast is largely a class one fluid market. The Northeast is a pretty mixed market. It's got class four, class three, class two, class one. Uh, you know, California and the West Coast is largely a class four market. But yeah, and you have others around the country that have, you know, kind of a mixed makeup of their, of their industry. Pulling all of those groups together to, uh, to develop consensus, which is critically important, nothing is going to pass unless it has consensus. And that's not 55-45. It isn't even, in my view, 60-40. It's going to require a great deal of, of support, almost a supermajority, if you will, uh, in order to move through the process. So that's why we are engaged in the effort we are within National Milk to pull all of our members together and understand that when you make a change here, it has an effect there. And that's part of the complexity of putting all this together. So back to Secretary Vilsack's comments, what he is simply saying is there has to be consensus. And he's talking about consensus in the producer community because first and foremost, the federal order program is a producer program. Producers are the ones who vote on the continuation of an order. So that process of developing consensus is what we're engaged in. Um, it's why we will working right now internally, and then we will be meeting with a um, number of state dairy associations across the country and other interested parties to talk with them um, about these issues, get their views and input before we put forth a, um, a final proposal, which we hope and plan and expect will reflect the consensus of the producer community. That doesn't mean everybody's gonna agree with it. There's gonna be folks who don't like certain aspects of it, but that's kind of the give and take that's necessary here to get a package that has something that addresses the needs of producers in different parts of the country. We all gotta hold hands together to move that forward. Well, and I'm certain that producers listening as well are gonna be happy to hear this, that there is a process that is moving this forward. Moving on to the processor side a little bit, what are your thoughts on the new USDA make allowance report? And how do you think this may impact farmers if it gets incorporated? Well, number one, it, it does have a, a bearing on the discussion we were just having on the federal orders. And in fact, we were not really able to move forward too far down the path on some of the class three and class four issues in particular until we had this study. So I'm very pleased that it's finally out. It's been a number of years in the making of uh, some of the data in that study, you know, dates back to surveyed results from a few years ago. Um, so we're, you know, we're looking to see how, how up to date is some of the, some of the numbers in the, in the report. I'm very pleased that we have it now. Folks are looking at it at closely. Uh, we've had um, USDA had a webinar uh, to uh, provide an opportunity for people to ask questions of uh, Dr. Mark Stevenson from the University of Wisconsin, 
who uh, had conducted the, the, uh, the survey. Um, that was very well attended and a very helpful um, webinar uh, to you know, address some of the questions folks have. Our task force is also reaching out to Dr. Stevenson and, and having discussions to, so we get a full understanding of, of uh, you know, the detail um, in that study. Um, one of the things you, know, you see in that is a fairly wide range, a spread between different plants within that are making the same product. Um, you know, especially I think on the, on the non-fat dry milk side, uh, quite a, a, a broad spread from the, the most efficient plants to the, the less efficient plants. Um, and then so the question becomes, you know, what is the appropriate make allowance there? These are important make allowances. Calculating these, getting them right are very important because the most of the, of the production or large share of the production in class three and class four um, are in, in cooperative plants. Um, that's the historic nature of the industry. And um, you've got to be able to run those plants. Uh, you got to be able to get returns to uh, put into the producer paycheck and operate the plant. So the make allowances are important. It's great to have this report now. Um, it's, it's too early to, to, for me to say today, you know, what's going to be the impact of that uh, because we're still digging into it. But the, I do expect that the make allowance issue will be part of this comp, comp, um, a comprehensive package that we put together uh, as we move forward. Um, if in, expecting that we will have a proposal going to USDA um, later this year, um, the make allowance issue will become part of that um, overall um, uh, proposal we'll put forward. Let's shift gears a little to talk about labor. Labor continues to be top of mind for most dairy producers. Do you see any policy changes or opportunities on the horizon? Well, this is an issue that I, I wish I could be more optimistic. Um, yes, you, you and me both. <laughs> I was hoping you had some. <laughs> I, I wish I did. I, I don't want to be pessimistic, but I, I will say that um, this issue is one that just bedevils me and it bedevils the industry. Um, it should be much simpler to address and resolve. The labor crisis on our dairy farms is real. The labor crisis throughout agriculture is real. The labor crisis throughout the food processing industry is real. In fact, one of the challenges for our overall economy is adequate workforce, um, especially in, in many of the, the blue collar jobs. Um, we've been working on this for 25 years and still can't get legislation through Congress that will address the um, workforce needs of, of dairy, which is my focus, uh, but really all of agriculture. Um, the H-2A program, which is the immigrant labor program uh, that provides seasonal workers uh, for many parts of, um, of agriculture, doesn't work for dairy because our jobs are not seasonal, they're not temporary. We need access to a year-round workforce. And we've been trying for years to get the H-2A program expanded to provide um, a, a, a legal workforce within H-2A, um, as well as to legalize our existing workforce. Because while we have a labor shortage on our farms, we have many workers on our farms today, many of whom we know from studies are not documented. And that's a problem. 
Uh, it's a problem from the standpoint of bringing these folks, many of whom have been working on, on these farms for five, 10, 15 years, bringing them out of the shadows, making them, uh, giving them legal status for the hard work that they've done to put food on the tables of the American people and to provide product for the export market that I talked about earlier. Um, we've got a bill passed through the House twice uh, in the last uh, uh, three years. Um, and that bill now sits in the Senate waiting action there. We've been working the better part of a year now to try to get movement in the Senate. And um, they're still, we're still pushing that, still hope that we can move it forward. Um, but there has not been the kind of movement that I would hope there would be. Um, a big focus from the, those who are um, uh, reluctant, let me just say that, reluctant to move forward is, um, is a focus on the border uh, and on border security. We're all for that. This is, this is not a either or choice. Um, you can do both things and making it a kind of a binary choice um, is why we're stuck in the position we are. We've got to find a common ground. Both sides, left and right, need to come together to address this issue. And um, as we talk today, Kim, I do not see that um, in the near future. I'm still hopeful that we'll get that kind of alignment happening um, as a labor crisis in this country uh, becomes deepens. I think it's the imperative is that we have to take action here, provide legal status to these workers. We need, and we need a future flow of workers. So we need H2A to work for our program because the current workers we have are gonna age out and we don't have a workforce to come in and take their place. That's why this issue is so important. I'm hopeful that there'll be action today. Um, I, I'm not holding my breath on it. It, it it's, I think it may still take some time. And the last thing I wanted to touch on with you today is a little bit about environmental policy. And all environmental policy is important for dairy producers, but especially with regard to the net zero initiative, we've seen the conversation shifting more to net neutrality. Uh, but there are farmers, a lot of producers that are concerned about selling carbon credits as offsets and then perhaps not being able to take the credit on the dairy side, since we do have this voluntary commitment to be net zero or to reach net neutrality by 2050. Is that something our producers need to be concerned about? Well, it's a great question. And this whole area is a critically important one for the industry. So if I could maybe um, work down to your question, Kim, because that's a, that's a very specific part of this, and I, I won't take long, but just to, to set the table for the importance of this issue and the reason that a number of dairy community organizations have come together to set this net zero initiative. Our goal of having the U.S. dairy industry be greenhouse gas neutral um, by 2050 uh, gives us almost 30 years to get there. Um, frankly, I think that we'll be there long before that. Um, it is not a um, it, it's not that you can't see the pathway to get to net zero. It is how we make it happen. And uh, part of the, you know, part of it is the cost of some of the technology that is needed that help move us down that path. Um, we are working to um, address that through um, efforts, you know, trying to get support from um, from USDA from the federal government uh, for. Uh, to fund some of the initiatives, incentive funds, um, the, the work that USDA is engaged in right now 
uh, on the Climate Smart Commodities Initiative, this $1 billion um, uh, funds from the um, CCC that Secretary Vilsack has announced um, is, a, is an important uh, move to help us make progress um, on, on this journey, on this path toward, uh, toward net zero. And it's net zero on greenhouse gas. Um, initially, we talked about uh, uh, carbon neutrality. Um, and as the, these discussions become more focused and more refined, you know, the issue for dairy is not so much carbon. Um, our greenhouse gas, it, it, the predominant greenhouse gas for us is methane. And that's both enteric methane uh, from the cow as well as uh, methane uh, from manure. Um, and that's a, so it's, that's two thirds really of our greenhouse gas impact. And that's where a lot of our focus is. Um, methane digesters, uh, we've seen that increase in California in particular uh, and others being built around the country to take advantage of a low carbon fuel standard in California. Uh, that's providing revenue um, for these uh, for these digesters. And that's the key is how do we monetize? How do we take this from an issue uh, that is not a regulated cost? That's been our whole goal from day one. Keep these these climate issues from becoming regulations on the industry, but use try to use market forces to achieve the same end to get to that point of contributing to um, reduce greenhouse gas emissions, uh, but doing it through incentives and, and the market and, and carbon, carbon markets are going to be a key part of that. Um, so great progress being made. The commitment in dairy is, is strong. The commitment across US agriculture is strong and growing. We're part of the, uh, the Food and Agriculture Climate Alliance, which is a, a coalition of, um, of a number of all the major agricultural groups that you can think of. Uh, a number of uh, mainstream environmental groups, uh, non-government organizations that we're working with to work together to advance um, collective interest in this area. Um, and that is, that is helpful on Capitol Hill. It's helpful um, at USDA as we get into this space. Um, the issue that you raised, Kim, on, on carbon markets and, um, and selling credits, that gets into the, the carbon accounting issue. And it's one that um, what you said is an issue. Yes. Um, our customers, dairy customers, you know, some of the major corporations, um, they too have greenhouse gas goals. They too are trying to get to net zero um, in their efforts. We are part of their emissions. It's called scope three emissions. So the emissions that you don't control directly through your own, your own processes or practices, um, those are scope one emissions. Um, the emissions that come from uh, downstream from products you buy and that are part of your supply chain are scope three. And so we're scope three emissions for the, for the food companies that are using dairy products. Um, they, the issue is who gets the credit for um, emissions reductions. Um, and the point I wanna make is that's not just an issue for dairy, it's an issue in all of carbon accounting. It's one that has to get worked out. I'm, I'm, completely optimistic it will get worked out because really what it's about is you, don't, you can't have double counting on the same emission. Um, but at the end of the day, we will get financial reward for making reductions um, in those carbon markets. How the accounting goes um, is, is a process um, that I think will get worked out over the next, in the next few years. Again, it's not just a dairy issue, it's an issue for, for everybody. 
if I make um, two last points here, um, and, and you may have follow up, but I just want to update folks. Um, a couple of things we're working on uh, in this space to provide those incentives is a investment tax credit of 30% um, ITC for investments in, uh, in, in methane digesters, which we've had historically, want to make sure that, that continues, um, and to extend that to uh, nutrient separation technology and other technologies that help with both greenhouse gases and have environmental benefits. One of the things that uh, we want to be able to do is take that manure waste stream and, and separate out the nitrogen, the, the, the potassium, and the phosphorus into separate, you know, separate streams, uh, keep them from getting into um, the environment, um, and be able to apply them at agronomic rates, um, use fertilizers. You know, some, some watersheds are, are um, overloaded with nitrogen uh, and, and phosphorus deficient. Others are just the opposite. And by you know, being able to move nitrogen out of one watershed into another um, it can be helpful. And those are the kinds of things that uh, uh, we get incentives to develop that technology. I think over the next 10, 15 years, you're gonna see more, more development in that space. And the, the other area just to mention is, um, I, I talked about enteric emissions a bit ago. That's a third of, of the emissions from dairy. Um, there are feed additives uh, that, you know, under development that uh, can contribute to significant reductions in enteric methane emissions. Uh, one in particular that has been seeking approval uh, here in the US and around the world has just gotten that approval um, in, uh, uh, in the EU. Uh, I think it was approved in uh, Chile earlier this year. So that's starting to pick up. I know New Zealand's looking at it and, and our Food and Drug Administration is, has it under review as well. We're seeking some changes to make that approval process earlier. It's another tool, it could be another tool in the arsenal. Those are the kinds of things that more and more are gonna develop that make me very, very optimistic, very bullish on our ability to, um, to achieve these goals. And it's only gonna become more important as we go forward, tying this point to the very first one I made in our conversation about the export market. The, the more the US is the leader in sustainability as a dairy industry, the better position that puts us in, in this world market. And we're number three today. There will come a time, and I don't think it's in the too distant future, where the US dairy industry will be the number one exporter in the world. Um, that is, that's our imperative. Um, we're gonna have to get there. We will get there. And through all the steps we're taking uh, to have the most sustainable milk supply in the world, that's only gonna add to our ability to be that, that number one player in the world market. Well, that's great, Jim, to hear about uh, your efforts in continuing to help promote innovation versus regulation, because that's always something that is top of mind to producers all across the country. And I don't need to tell you, our farmers are the most innovative problem solvers on the planet. And the more we can support them in that, the better. Indeed, they are. And that's why we've been, this is a, you know, the point you just made, Kim, is we've, um, listening to farmers, talking to our farmers within our organization, and within the checkoff program, because all of these efforts, you know, I started working these efforts in 2007, 2008 um, with the with DMI and the checkoff program, where we recognized, you know, the the opportunity and the challenge here. Um, so, you know, the goal from day one has been exactly that: to prevent these issues from becoming regulated cost on producers, and ideally turn them into revenue stream. Um, that that vision, that dream, we started with a dream, became a vision. Um, it's moving toward reality. 
Well, thank you so much, Jim, for taking the time with us today. We appreciate it. Thanks for the great discussion and the update. We look forward to continuing discussions with you in the future. This wraps up our Bova News podcast for today. If you like what you heard, be sure to follow Bova News on your favorite podcast subscription service. And while you're at it, follow us on the various social media platforms and subscribe to our YouTube page. And be sure to check out our website, bovanews.com, for more information and alerts to upcoming podcasts and webinars. This has been your host, Kim Bremer. And from everyone at Bova News, have a great day.